Welcome to CNN Slate. The name CNN Slate pays homage to our ancestral ways of knowledge sharing. Sienna, taken from the color of clay, used as a writing tool and a medium, and slate referencing a blank slate or a chalkboard, a stone. These are the stories that don't get told anywhere else. Through a collective of deep conversation, storytelling, sage advice, we celebrate the interconnected aspects of genius, resilience, scholarship, and well-being. Through a collective of deep conversation, storytelling, and sage advice, we celebrate the interconnected aspects of genius, resilience, scholarship, and well-being for writers, thinkers, and doers. You're in the right place. I'm Dr. Keogh, and in this episode, I share this space with Dr. Luz Casqueo Johnston. Dr. Luz has been in the field of education for two decades as a classroom teacher, a charter school principal, and a professor at St. Mary's College of California in the teacher education department. Her expertise is in human development, human motivation with a Montessori lens. Her passion is helping parents identify their parenting superpowers so they can design and create the family they've always wanted. Welcome to the show, Dr. Luz. I'm so glad we're able to connect and have you as a guest. Thank you, Keandria. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, we had such a good time talking about academia and what it's like. I think we talked a lot about um, beyond my passion right now in parenting coaching, coaching. We talked a lot about what it is like to be a woman of color in a mm -hmm. university setting, in a college setting. I think that's where we really clicked. I'm super excited to talk here so that we can like really uncover hidden stories, talk about experiences, and then talk about what's beyond. Because as you know, I'm in the I'm in the beyond. So it sounds really yes. cliffhanger, <laughs> but you can add, we can start there if you want to talk. Yeah, ask me anything. Absolutely. Yeah, we can start wherever you want to start. There's so many things that. Gosh, there's so many things that I'm like, when I when we had the conversation the other day, I, I was like, oh my gosh, where, where are we going to start? What should we talk about? Because we know that time is limited, but of course, you're always welcome to come back and continue these conversations. Oh, yeah, for sure. For yeah, sure. because they're so rich when we just connect, you know, one-to-one -one in this space. You mentioned that, you know, the um, in your bio that you came from an academic space um, as a principal and, and then all of that. So... What, tell us how you got here. How did I get here? I guess that's my question. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> I'll try to keep it long story short or short story long. I don't know. Either way. <laughs> so um, I am proudly the daughter of immigrants. And I think as such, we follow a certain pathway, those of us who are considered first gen. And so first gen is really the first generation that is born in the United States of America. That's how we. That's how I, my understanding, and that's the definition I'll use. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because I think I follow a very typical first-gen pathway. My parents immigrated on the Hart-Seller Act of 1965, mm -hmm. which was a preference that uh, was given to those who were born outside of the U.S. to come in if they had professional degrees. My mother had finished her medical degree and my father had finished his engineering degree with an emphasis in civil engineering. And so my story has always been about academics. My parents were both college educated. And so that was just the expectation. 
And I think um, what I know from the experiences of other first gen students is that there are kind of these like, these are the pathways. You become a doctor or a business person or a lawyer. And I slotted myself because my mother was a medical doctor into the medical kind of field. And so my whole, my identity and my ideal had always been from K through 12 into college. You know, when I was mm. in college, uh, it became this like, let's go into medicine. Well, here's the deal. I think we grow up, we're in these kind of proto adults mm -hmm. and the world is open to us when we're finally outside of our own families of origin. I don't know. Is that something that you experienced too, Dr. Keo? Absolutely. Absolutely. So with my background, and we connected to this in our initial conversation as well, my background being in human development as well. So we, we have so many parallels yeah. um, to this. And yes, yeah, so you don't, you really come into your own when you leave your family of origin and begin to develop your identity for yourself. Yeah. And so that's what happens. And, you know, we can talk about that too. I, I opened myself up to the wider world and I realized these mm -hmm. things that I was interested in. And I also understood that I was wholly unprepared to be a whole human um, mm -hmm. in this space. And so, you know, things happen like, oh, mm -hmm. no one is on me to study. No one is checking that I'm doing the things, you know? And so um, through this experience, I realized in my fourth year of um, of my undergraduate degree that these grades are not medical <laughs> medical school grades. And so I had to take a beat. Um, and I actually had the good fortune to meet my husband. Uh, we're celebrating our 30 years. Uh, and just Congratulations. You know, yeah. Thank you. It's like a big feat. We met when we were 22. And so what happened was I realized that I didn't have the grades. So I sort mm -hmm. of um, cobbled together this, uh, I told my mom, here's the pitch, right? I'm telling my mom who's a doctor and my dad, who's a civil engineer. You know what's yeah. really great for medical school these days is that you have something really out of the box. <laughs> so, you know, I had been writing um, poetry. So I cobbled, to, I, uh, that was the pitch. If you pay for a fifth year, Anybody else in the audience mm -hmm. is fifth year, super senior. Um, <laughs> I can finish my creative writing poetry minor, which will look really awesome on medical school applications. Mm -hmm. Give me the opportunity to, um, to really delve into my writing practice. It gave me an opportunity to have a little breathing space around this. Yes. I'm going to medical school. And it also mm -hmm. helped me, uh, gave me the time to kind of see myself as an adult in a full-fledged adult, you know, having a relationship that was outside mm -hmm. of just kind of typical high school boyfriend-girlfriend type things, right? And so I started to think to myself, what am I going to do? So through the whole, through this whole process, I did apply to medical school. I didn't even reach the second round, which is the interview part. And I had to regroup. And I was gifted with another situation, which is I got married and I found my, I was pregnant within like four months of being married. That's what happens when you're 20, you're 22. <laughs> but then I had to take another step back. Did I have with my undergraduate degree, did I have the skills uh, that were going to help me take uh, to 
uh, earn a job to get a job that was going to pay for our living expenses now plus childcare. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing I think we find out in the under as we're undergraduates that mm-hmm. sometimes these um, degrees don't land us with marketable skills. So I found myself in this situation of, uh oh, and and I think it's even more common nowadays because more and more, more and more people are going to college and college is becoming the default. So as Mm -hmm. that happens, then we find and we look around and we think, oh, my goodness, do I have the skills to get a job Mm -hmm. that is going to help me pay for my living expenses? Plus, now I have a child. So what ended up happening, because I couldn't do that, um, I decided to stay home with my baby, which gave me a little bit more time. And when she was a year old, uh, I was able to kind of cobble together another job. And then during that time, my husband was working for the University of California. And uh, he, uh, one of his assistants actually uh found a flyer for a program. I had been really thinking about the things that really made me, it gave me this opportunity to think about the things that really made my heart sing. And one of those things has always been working with young children. So I found uh, a program where I could intern and earn money while also Mm -hmm. finishing out my teaching credential. And that was my pathway into TK-12. So I Mm -hmm. earned and learned at the same time, which was beautiful because I graduated from my credential program with zero debt. Yeah, so that's still, awesome. I know it was. It is awesome, and there are still programs um, in several states where you can still do that. So, mm-hmm. you know, fast forward. I went through. Um, I taught in a traditional kindergarten, and then fell back in love with Montessori after finding Montessori for my daughter, and then helped um, started talking about the need for public spaces in Montessori education. And I found myself in the charter school movement. So I became the founding faculty at a a charter school here in the San Francisco Bay Area, and then decided to move back to Southern California. And I helped to found another charter school there. And then uh, my friend who was the leader of that charter school at the time moved on. So we needed a new administrator. And that's when I came in, which leads me to graduate school, because as Mm -hmm. someone who had a bachelor's of science in nutrition and food science, um, and I also believe as a person who was racialized in the United States of America, I look young, I am petite, and I'm a person of color. So I was getting a lot of um, questions I felt in my heart would not be asked had I presented as a white male. Mm, mm. Or as a white woman, a lot of, I don't want to tell you how to do a job as the principal, which meant that I was going to spend about 15, maybe 20, maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour where they're telling me my business. Yeah. And don't have a plaque on the wall. So mm-hmm. as I started to learn more and more and d- dive deeper into the students, understanding what was going on for the students in my um, in the school that I was leading, I realized, like, literally, I was like, man, I'm reading so much more on human development. I should get a doctorate out of this. So I found a doctorate program that allowed me, I've been really gifted with opportunities where I can earn and learn at the same time. 
And mm -hmm. so I found a joint doctoral program between UC San Diego and Cal State San Marcos mm -hmm. that was created for practitioner researchers. So people might know not know in the graduate school field, there's the PhD, which yes. is made for researchers. So in education, you can be a researcher who also happens to be in TK-12. This was made for leaders who wanted the background of research to help them mm -hmm. in their practice. And so by and large, the people in our EDD, our doctoral of education program, mm -hmm. Towards, I'm going to go back into the district. I'm going to go back into my charter school. I'm going to go back into my private school setting and use what I've learned about critical theory, about leadership, about um, research practices and gathering yes. data to help me hold my my practitioner stance. So that that sold me. When I heard that that's who this program was geared for, I said, sign mm -hmm. me up did all of the things. And then um, after I was done, had another step back. Like Now that I've finished graduate school, am mm -hmm. I really still invested, interested, excited, delighted by my position in TK-12? And by that time, I had grown our school programs so much so that I was leading two school sites with 650 students, 45 direct reports, in five different types of educational programs. I worked in a, um, a charter, uh, I wanna say like a charter organization, but it's not a big charter organization like mm -hmm. a kid, mm -hmm. like an Edison. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so at that point then, kind of like opened myself up to possibility and a Montessori teacher education professorship tenure track position opened up, which is, I believe to be possibly the first most um, folk who are in the teacher education who are in Montessori are tenured yes. in psychology, in human development. And this is one of the first ones that was really slated as a Montessori tenure mm -hmm. track position. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So you, absolutely. You have so many nuggets in here that I want to pull out a couple. <laughs> I just want to pull out a couple. So you, you specifically talk about, um, and we'll just call it apparent failure because it wasn't it wasn't failure. It was a couple of setbacks, but it set you up for success. I know. I love that. That's like one of my favorite quotes. Oh, my gosh. I'm, um, I'm drawing a blank. A setback can be a setup mm -hmm. for a comeback. Yes. I love that. Yeah, and that's what happened. I, it happened multiple times. Yeah, yeah. For you, yeah, as, as you were telling your story. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your what's your favorite um, failure, if you will? What what was the what's one of the ones that you had said this? This is the one that propelled me. Or this is the one that taught me the thing I needed to know. Is there one? You know, I think the first one, I think we learn the most from our our first failure mm -hmm. if we are given the opportunity. And so there's a lot of opportunity there, right? So I would not have had the opportunity to think about that failure mm -hmm. if I hadn't <laughs> if I hadn't had my daughter, right? Yes. So I had to spend time. I didn't have a way to make money and pay for childcare. And so mm -hmm. failure is helpful and can be the compost that helps us to provide the soil for our next opportunity 
if we have the opportunity to prepare that, right? If we have a little bit of a gift of time, it doesn't have to be, you know, 12 months like I had, it could be a week. You know, if we're intentional, if we say I failed or this didn't work out. Yes. Right. We have to get into this moment from I failed, which feels really held, which feels very wounding mm-hmm. to uh, what is this experience telling me to do? So there's like a number of different ways that we can get into this moment of that mm-hmm. didn't work out from failure, right? And I had that opportunity because I had uh, close friends. I had my husband, at, um, you know, I had people that I could draw on because literally as the rejection letters are coming in, the door is closing on medical school. So yes. it was really apparent to me that we needed to do a rethink. And so I think, you know, I have the opportunity and I just want to call out my privilege. I come from a middle-class background. Mm -hmm. I come from a middle-class background with parents who um, were professionals. So for me, I knew if worse came to worse, then we would have the opportunity to perhaps regroup and move back, you know, in with my parents. Mm So I have a lot of privilege there. I have privilege because mm-hmm. my parents understood um, and were very tied to higher education. They also had, they had some generation, not generational wealth, but they had some uh, financial capital, you know, they had yes. abilities to help me if, the, if needed, right? Mm-hmm. And so I hold that privilege. I hold the privilege that I am also cisgender. I am also mm-hmm. heterosexual. So mm-hmm. I'm not hiding my marriage. I'm not working through those things. So I had that as an opportunity. And I'd also like to say that I'm Asian, you know, and so when people see me and I'm read and racialized as Asian, then they're start they say things like, there's a hard worker, even if they don't know who I am. That yes. becomes kind of a, a gift and a curse. I've been put into a lot of situations over my year. We can years and you can talk we can talk about that. Where I'm putting into these situations where people assume I'm going to thrive, and it actually sets me up for a lot of internal failure, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we talked about that in our initial conversation as well, and I absolutely want to revisit that conversation. Yeah, if you're yeah. open to it. Yeah, so defining race as other others perceive you. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We yeah. talked about that in terms of mm-hmm. uh, my husband is. Uh, racialized as white, I am racialized as mm-hmm. Asian, and so I have mixed race children, and they are perceived in the world in different ways. My daughter is also always read, and I like to talk about it as sort of reading because we can feel our own identity, but when, uh, especially for children who are of mixed race, they are read in the world in a certain way. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're not ever. Oh, I'm also. I have all of these different. Um, beautiful cultures and backgrounds that make me it's no I see you as and so Mm -hmm. my my daughter is always seen as an Asian woman Mm -hmm. my son is sometimes seen as a you know a tan white man Mm -hmm. he's sometimes racialized and read as a Latinx man he's very seldom racialized as Filipino 
um, as Asian, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. So they walk in the world in a different way than I do. I am always read as Asian, always. Yeah. Yeah. And you brought that up in how it has affected your work and how it's affected your positions as well. Did you want to speak on any of that? Well, I think, you know, so starting in seventh grade and I I was given the opportunity to be in, uh, I mean, I skipped algebra one. So we did algebra one and then they skipped me into high school geometry and I seriously was not ready for it. There were a lot of academic situations that looking back, I realized, oh, I was the Asian girl on the academic pentathlon team on the spelling, Mm. you know, going to countywide Mm -hmm. spelling bee in the geometry class. And those were, um, because I was told always, you are smart and you're a hard worker, there was a lot of shame involved in that. Mm -hmm. Especially that that the geometry class was the first time I felt academically unprepared. And then I really had this shift in myself around identity there. Mm. Like, oh, I have been told I am smart. And so that am is an equal sign. I equal smart. Yes. And so mm-hmm. then when something gets a little, mm-hmm. you know, the balance is wrong there, then yes. it has to be a non-equal sign. I am not smart. And so yes. that, you know, that you carry, you carry that shame. And if I am smart, what are things that are not available to me? Tutoring asking mm-hmm. for help, feeling vulnerable. And so these are things that were really hard for me to ask for help on. And to say like, I I have needs too, right? So, and to stand up for myself. So I think mm-hmm. in that principal position, my feeling was um, I should be respect. I am the leader, I am leader. <laughs> and then when people are coming in and they're saying, I don't wanna tell you how to do your job, I have this feeling that I am other or I am less than. It has nothing to do with anything personally that I have done. Oftentimes, as a school leader, it's policy. It's things that you're just bringing down from Mm -hmm. greater organization. And it becomes like, why are you doing this? And Mm -hmm. I feel, I I really truly believe, and there are studies, if you look out, uh, out in the world, around those of us who are racialized as black and brown, how we are perceived and how we are received. Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. We know in the academic spaces, spoiler alert, that women (laughs) and women of color receive different student evaluations. Absolutely. And I was going to say it's also gendered. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So things like... um, no, I'm not going to reschedule office hours becomes, oh, you're not available. And that doesn't yes. happen for other colleagues, you know? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these are things that I started, you know, it's that before you start doing these kind of critical stances, social justice stances, you're just experiencing your life and you're just yes. trying to figure out how to be a whole human in this space, even mm-hmm. though there's something mm-hmm. happening for you. So yes. when I joined, when I joined uh, the St. Mary's and became part of academia, I was pushed as a tenure track uh, professor to go out and search and present and do all of these things. 
And so that's when I came into contact with a group called Montessori for Social Justice. And their mm -hmm. whole stance was that the Montessori movement has the uh, ability to be a liberatory space, but mm -hmm. it is not a liberatory space. There are those mm -hmm. of us who are racialized as black and brown or uh, in uh, other uh, other other categories such <laughs> as you know physically disabled um mm -hmm. physically differently abled intellectually differently abled um sexual orientation and so this yes. was the space where we could talk about it and it was the first time somebody pushed me on on this kind of thing because i had internalized so much stuff and yeah. so I remember like my big pivotal moment into really looking at my identity was that at the time I would make fun of things about myself as a way to uh, kind of engage in conversation. So saying mm. things like, so this is what happened. I had rented a car at this Montessori for Social Justice event. And, mm -hmm. you know, we needed to make a target run as one does. So we made a target run and people piled into the car and I said, you know, buckle your seatbelt because I'm both Asian and a woman. Mm. And this is the kind of thing I would joke about all the time. Mm -hmm. And one of the people in the car who was also an Asian woman who was further along on Lee, honestly, this is the difference on her identity and critical thinking uh, pathway mm -hmm. in social justice. So she pulled me aside and she said, you know, I was offended by that. Not because mm -hmm. you said it to me, but because you normalized making fun of yourself. And that's something called internalized racism. And I yeah. was like, what is that? Yeah. You know, in my studies, again, you know, bachelor's of science in nutrition and food studies, my credential classes, we weren't really talking about internalized mm -hmm. oppression. We weren't talking about internalized you know, uh, gender norming, uh, you know, mm -hmm. so uh, misgendering and things like that. So it, it was one of these like, oh, I am doing that. Every time I make a joke about that, I make it okay to look at Asians and to look at women as less than or other. And so that was the beginning for me. And what a gift, man, because that moment, like really, whoop, yes. it hurt. And I thought, you know, sometimes when we fall, it's actually a good thing. So that made me realize, oh, what have I done? How have I participated mm -hmm. in upholding these systems? And mm -hmm. that was just a really small example, right? So opening my eyes to bias and how I'm read in the world has helped me to understand how other people are read in the world. And Absolutely. It's, it's opened my heart up to the fact that I have a lot of privilege. But mm -hmm. I also have things that disadvantage me. Mm -hmm. So, so how have you brought the space up for a lot of gray area, which actually I wasn't comfortable with in the beginning, and now I'm much more comfortable with, you know? Yeah. So how have you brought these experiences to the Montessori lens? Like how how are you how are you merging those? Because I know there is significant opportunity in yeah. the Montessori so, space to do this. Yeah, how I feel um, what I do now. Uh, so I also just left academia and I know that that's one of the things that, uh, pod people subscribe to your podcast are thinking about is like, what are outside of academia opportunities? Yes. So, uh, 
essentially what happened to me was that I had to think about what I could do out in the world. And because I was out in the world and starting to consult, I realized that there was this gap. There was this like, how do I speak to uh, people outside of the Montessori community about Montessori? Mm -hmm. If I believe that Montessori in the public sector is important, there are two things I need to do. One is to get out and talk about what Montessori is and isn't to people not in the community. And then the mm -hmm. other thing is to bring into the Montessori community the things that they need to empower mm -hmm. them to speak about Montessori. So it's almost like a translation service. Mm -hmm. So I talk to people outside of the Montessori community about the things we do in Montessori education that are called something different, mm -hmm. you know? So we have always differentiated instruction. So I talk about in outside of those communities, how in a Montessori learning environment, we tailor lessons to the students and that's called differentiation. And so in the Montessori community, I say, hey, outside of the Montessori community, these are the terms and we use them so that they can, I don't wanna say defend, but I wanna say, uh, help demystify. Because mm -hmm. anything new is mystical and then scary. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So also bringing in your conversation and topics of race and racialization, right? Yeah, so in exactly. the Montessori education, that's, that's an important topic as yeah. well. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. And I think one of the things that Montessori holds their hat on has been peace education. Mm -hmm. However, we know that any a term can be weaponized, right? Yes. So if we say peace, sometimes that means I don't want you to make me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sometimes when we talk about peace education, we mean everybody getting along yeah. in the current system. And mm -hmm. so what that, ha what that says is I am not safe to voice my concerns. I am not safe to ask questions about the system. I'm not safe to question the system or do something different in the system. And so when we take a social justice and anti-bias, anti-racist approach to Montessori, what we say is these complications exist because we are in a system and the mm -hmm. system was created by people. And what we're understanding more and more, especially now in the wake of Black Lives Matter and what we're, um, and also all of the things that are happening in le legislation to make the lives of LGBTQIA plus um, folks uh, more untenable really is that what we're seeing is we need to focus on anti-race and anti-bias. We need to accept people and celebrate them in their full humanity. And I felt honestly most accepted and most affirmed in queer spaces that are run by people of color. <laughs> because they're really like very intentional around I celebrate honor and um and want to support you in your full humanity so these are spaces yeah. where there's like all these options for everything from how to move in the space how to engage in the space so having uh, sign language opportunities mm -hmm. and even down to um 
food choices, right? Mm-hmm. I, I accept mm-hmm. and celebrate all of your food choices, you know, even religious yeah. celebrations and things like that. So does it make it complicated to run these things? I feel like the simplicity of how we run things in general has been in order to make a specific group of people more comfortable. And I think that's what we need to talk about. You know, if we're talking about Montessori education, we are supposed to be the we're supposed to be the education for peace. You know, Dr. Montessori says um, polit- uh, politicians can deal with war. Only education can enact peace. Mm-hmm. That's because we're working with the full child. But mm-hmm. if we're not thinking about how we intentionally design these spaces to push on what is considered uh, dominant or normal, yes, you know, if we yes. don't trouble these things, then we don't open spaces up for children mm-hmm. to be their full humanity. When we open up these spaces. So that we're talking about things in an age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate way. There's our human development. Exactly. That we can we can actually help children just to be in their full humanity, and mm-hmm. so that's kind of how I shifted. Actually, my passion now is working with parents, and so I've moved out of academia for a number of reasons. We talked about that. Mm-hmm. We can get into that if you want to ask about it. But I've moved more into consulting with schools. Um, to help mm-hmm. Montessori schools become more, uh, to become more grounded in their diversity, equity, inclusion, and their anti-bias, anti-racist practices. I've also moved into coaching leaders to kind of open space in themselves to think about that. And then most excitingly, parenting coaching. And all of that seems disparate, but it's actually all about human humanistic yeah. uh, approach to living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all it's all interconnected. Parents, children, school system systems. It's all interconnected. It's all about, sure. you know, how do we celebrate and prepare a space for the whole the whole human? Yeah. And I think uh, parenting is such a need because they're the first teachers and they're the people most in their lives. So what I what I like to do is um, I call my approach a um, life purpose plus parenting strategy. I feel like you have Mm. to have your life purpose. You have to be able, I'm giving you the space to mirror what I had the space for, Mm -hmm. which was when I had my daughter, I stayed home with her and I had the space and I took it. I thought I'm going back into the workplace. I got to figure this thing Mm -hmm. out. So I'm opening up the opportunity for parents to take a step back and say, what do I want out of this? What do I see for myself? What do I see for my family? What do I see for the children I will release onto the planet? Our children are a legacy, right? They're the ones that can change things. But we have to be in that space too. And Mm -hmm. I see that um, as I work with leaders. Like a lot of leaders in TK12 rise up from the ranks. And I think that's a great way to go. But they don't ask themselves, why am I rising up through the ranks? Mm-hmm. What do I mm-hmm. want out of this leadership? Why am I a leader? You can't just say, I want to lead. Yes. You have to say, I want to make a greater impact. I know that I'm changing the lives of children, but I can change more children's lives if I become a principal because then I'm affecting every classroom. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I moved up through the ranks because after being a principal, I thought, how can I, uh, as a principal, I'm, I'm changing the lives of the children in the classrooms based on how I'm hoping to inspire and change the lives of the teachers. So when I moved up into teacher education, I realized now it's different sets of teachers every year instead of the same school set of, you know, mm -hmm. faculty. And so now I'm, you know, this group, you know, one group, one cohort, and then a second cohort, and then a third cohort. And so we're at the, we're at a bigger part of the pyramid. And that's what I did. And now I realize that I could do more because, you know, the teacher education program is only in the Bay Area. So how mm -hmm. do I create a bigger impact is by doing more work with schools and parents nationwide. And so that's what I'm working on. And yeah. St. Mary's became really untenable, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then yeah. your work is seen as, as a more of a liberatory practice as well, because yeah. you're creating this space of empowerment, but also equity. And, and so yes. you're, especially for parents and, and young, uh, young children. Yeah, I think yeah. I'm creating these uh, opportunities for people to see the, um, see all the complications and see the complications mm -hmm. as a gift. Mm -hmm. I think there's so much tension in trying to keep it, trying to keep things the same. Yeah. Whereas if you just sort of make the edges a little fuzzy, then you're comfortable with thinking about things that are outside of your experience to mm -hmm. learn from them. And that's kind of the beginner or the learner's mindset. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you've touched on this just a little bit, but your passion now is, is it's always going to be in education and always going yeah. to be in but now your focus is moving toward the parents and identifying their parenting superpowers. Yeah. Right. So tell us a little bit about what that means, the superpowers and how it can be instrumental in creating the family environment that, that these parents yeah. desire. And I feel like, I feel as though this is also helpful for anyone who is not a parent in your podcast. <laughs> um, we, <laughs> this is like speaking to your jam, Dr. Keogh about human <laughs> development, right? We know, or if you don't know, we have life stages. And in every life mm -hmm. stage, there's a goal. And if that goal isn't met, then there's still a little wounded child inside who is yes. saying, oh, hey, I never, made, I never met my goal of feeling safe. So mm -hmm. these children live inside of us. And mm -hmm. sometimes we act from those children because they're submerged, right? We feel like, oh, I have physically grown through this stage. And what's left is this sort of psychological inner child. And there's a lot of work out there about the inner child. Yes. And mm -hmm. so when I talk about the parenting superpowers, you can identify those. I actually, in a, in a strange way, identifying how, uh, by healing that pain, right? Mm -hmm, so if you know mm -hmm. that you're not feeling safe, and that's one of the things, then you know that there were other moments in your life when yes. you did feel safe and strong. And so we can take those moments and feel into that moment and identify how we can help that inner child be safe. And that then becomes our superpower. Our superpower is now I can go into a situation and feel my, for myself, how is this creating safety for the child? Mm -hmm. 
it's going back and healing those children and understanding where we have triumphed, even though we're not, we unconsciously go through life until we consciously experience it. Mm -hmm. So I want to say that again. Okay. We unconsciously go through life until we consciously grab those experiences and learn from them. So we have learned a lot of things that are submerged. And so my job is to bring those things that have been in the unconscious to the conscious so that yeah. we can reclaim them. Absolutely. And once we reclaim them, we earn self-confidence because mm -hmm. we're not hiding anything. Mm -hmm. We're not hiding yeah. any of the pain of all of those younger selves. Yeah. And those are our superpowers. And I think everybody Absolutely. has the opportunity to do that. My, uh, my want is to help parents identify those. But any anyone, I mean, this is such good work for anyone to do so that they can mm -hmm. understand what's ticking underneath. You know, what's like driving? I don't know why I always do this. You know, there's that's a lot, there's a lot of questions like, I can never, or why can't I stop? Or yes. you know, and so these feelings of failure are actually rooted in these programmings of these little inner children who are pulling the strings. Yeah. Yeah. And, and acting out, right. For right, sure. So out. yes, especially acting out when you're throwing temper tantrums as an adult and you're like, what's going on? You need to do some self-reflection on what's going on with you. Yeah. Uh, we affectionately, a couple of us in academia call it being an academic asshole. Yeah. Why? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why are you being mean to people? Yeah. You need to, and this part of the wounding and part of the things that they hadn't dealt with. Let yeah. themselves and then and enacting those on others. Yeah. No. Bullying. It's the same thing as children. You're just doing it as an adult. Right. And we sort of accept that behavior. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I think what was shocking to me as I moved up in the ranks is just to see how, you know, I sort of ex expected like, oh, we're going to be in a professional setting. And I had this idea of what professional is. And then yeah. I get into these settings. And I see these behaviors and I'm like, ooh, that doesn't, that's not what I was expecting. You know, yeah, I wasn't expecting yeah. lashing out. I wasn't expecting mm -hmm. um, belittling, you know. Cool. Yes. You know, so that, and that especially in leadership, especially in leadership. Yeah. Or that, like yeah. mine, the territorialness mm -hmm. in, a, in, mm -hmm. in a, the TK12 setting, it's the, the, teachers who silo themselves like this is my classroom yeah you can't use the unit of study that I'm using or like do the plays that I'm doing or you know it's, <laughs> it's all of that and that's not like full-grown adult behavior mm -hmm. I mean we mm -hmm. know what that that's my behavior is yeah so there's this need yeah. when we think about human development and uh of identifying those needs and addressing those needs in a kind mm -hmm. way. I mean, as I have done more and more inner child work and really embraced all of those things, mm -hmm. I have become a more compassionate person. It's not mm -hmm. me saying like, look at that person being a toddler. It's like, yes. Oh, yes. Look at that person exhibiting toddler behavior. Yeah. I can be compassionate because I know that I have that too. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't set aside people for whom you need to stand up and say that's unjust, right? It just gives Absolutely. you this moment of compassion. And once you step back, you can move in a more powerful mm -hmm. way, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. So as an educator um, with extensive experiences in, <laughs> in all of these different <laughs> different levels of education, um, what would you what advice would you give to someone maybe in grad school or thinking about going into this field of education or even uh, early childhood or, you know, anything, anything like that, what opportunities are available based on your own experience or what would you, what would be a nugget that you would, you would share with them? Yeah, I think it's always like first before going into a graduate program, before thinking, before any move that you make in your life, ask yourself, what am I, what am I moving towards? Mm-hmm. What am I moving towards? What mm -hmm. is the impact that this will have in a positive yeah. way in my life? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people default into, I defaulted because I thought, well, first of all, as an undergrad, with an undergraduate degree, I was like, what am I going to do? You know, so I had to determine what I was going to do. And so what I did, um, you know, I'll, I'll give that example. What I did was take a step back and say, what fills me? What fills mm -hmm. me is working with young children. Mm -hmm. um, and to be honest with you, if you think, if you're thinking about going into education, for example, if you want to be a teacher, think to yourself what, um, oftentimes when we think about what age group we want to work with, it's because there's somebody inside of us going, I have unresolved things. <laughs> like the teachers who say I really only want to work first through third in first through third grade there's yes. probably somebody knocking at the door saying please see what I need and meet what I need yeah so that's what I would say about um, going into the field of education if you're called to a certain um, age group oftentimes it is because something sang to you from that moment that you want to reclaim that's really good. That is really yeah. good. Yeah, that's really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I think when you're thinking about, um, you know, when you're thinking about graduate school, again, what is the impact I want to have? And how is this going to help me impact? There's a lot that you can do with an EDD and a PhD that I think a lot of people don't get. You know, there's a cachet to it. Yes. If you're in the academic field, do what I do. And just like, just network like a boss. Mm -hmm. I'm consistently, and that doesn't happen out of fear. That happens out of where is my impact going to be? So I'm consistently preparing myself when I get into these conference spaces to think about, here's my impact. My impact is on young children. I want to set an attention to meet people that are going to help me towards that goal. And mm -hmm. so, you know, a lot of people, I've never actually been to AERA, which is the American, American Education yes. Research. I've never been there. And the uh -huh. reason for that is because I'm not wanting to impact researchers. Mm -hmm. But I will go to early childhood conferences. I will go to Montessori conferences. I will go to middle school conferences because I want to impact mm -hmm. young children. So... Yes. I, I know people have asked me, you've never been to AERA? No, first I've heard that it's really big and it's really about yeah. research and I'm really about yes. practicing uh -huh. and being a, practice, uh, a practitioner. So if you're in graduate school and you're thinking, how do I create, that's the question. Like the question of inquiry is, 
what is my impact meant to be in the world? Mm-hmm. And they can go mm-hmm. to those spaces because with an EDD and a PhD, there's a little bit of a cachet to it. It opens mm-hmm. up your world for that. And I want you to see that as the opportunity. I want anybody who's um, enjoying this podcast to see the opportunity of that. Even if you're still kind of dealing with imposter syndrome, there is something that says, Dr. Keo, Dr. Luz, there's something around that that you can Mm -hmm. use your advantage. Do what you need to, to kind of like embody that, but kind of move like a boss towards it. Yeah. Very good piece of nugget. Very good piece of nugget. So we have this segment called uh, Off the Cuff. Okay. Yeah. So this is where a a person, a a person sends in a random question. Oh, yeah. That's right. You told me about this. I just wanted to make sure you were up for it. Yeah. (laughs) So so the question we pulled for you today, and this is really befitting uh, for our conversation. But the question we pulled for you today was from Ray in California. And his question was, what's your legacy? And that was the question. Oh my gosh, so crazy. (laughs) There's no context. It's just the question. (laughs) That's so great because we've been talking about impact, right? And honestly, my legacy with a capital L is to influence a generation of parents to break these patterns that we've just been defaulting into and create these functioning humanistic families Mm -hmm. so that we don't have to have a generation of children who are breaking cycles. I would love to break patterns now and into the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I think the next conversation that we'll have to have are, is the one on family patterns. So yes. that's the next conversation. Yes, that we'll have to have, and we'll have to come back and have that one. Definitely, definitely. I do, uh, yeah, I'm starting, as you know, Dr. Keo and I met because we're working on building our own brand and businesses. Yes. And so uh, she knows that I am working on uh, building out programming around that. Yes, so yes. Uh, one of the things I do is I work one-on-one with parents and I work mm-hmm. one-on-one with individuals to yeah. think about those patterns and break them. So that's, yeah. that's what so I- So tell, tell us more about that and how can we support you? Yeah, so I have created a one-on-one coaching programs um, for individuals and then also for parents. And that can be any, you know, parents of children of any age. I think there's a lot of parenting experts who are like, I'm a parenting expert on toddlers. I'm a parenting expert on elementary. Mm -hmm. I'm actually a parenting expert on parents. So I am working specifically with parents who are wanting to, to, um, they're on the cusp. They have tried things, but they don't know why. And they're saying to themselves, like, I can never be patient. I keep trying. <laughs> and so oftentimes, as we've been talking to Dr. Keo, there's that little toddler, mm-hmm. there's that little elementary, yeah. there's that little baby who is needing some healing. And once we uh-huh. identify those superpowers for parents, and, mm-hmm. um, and again, of any age, and it could be parents mm-hmm. of any family situation, you can be a grandparent raising children. You yes. could be a, 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 a solo mom 
you know, single mom by mm-hmm. choice. You mm-hmm. can be par- uh, parents who are living in separate households. This is like mm-hmm. just about you individually. What are you going to do to address, to find those superpowers? And then I work with individuals who are even thinking about parenting, not thinking about parenting, to again, mm-hmm. again go back and reclaim all those pieces that we are yes. submerging because they're hurting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the kind of things that I'm working on. And um, you can go to parentingonpurpose.life, which I was mm-hmm. I was so excited that that was uh, the dot life <laughs> was actually available because I think, oh, yeah, we want a parenting yeah. on purpose life. And although it just mm-hmm. is, although it's parenting on purpose, I also coach. I also do one on one coaching with individuals. So if you're thinking about this and you're not in this parenting space, but you mm-hmm. are a person who is, who is, ooh, I need to define my life purpose. Come to me yes. because in about two months time, we can make so much progress that you're, uh, you're uh, able to look at things and say with authority, yes, this, no, that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, I love it. I love it. So parentingonpurpose.life is where we can find you. Yeah. Yes. And the information will be in the show notes as well. Any last words for us before we sign off today? Um, my last words of wisdom are that you are whole and healthy. You were whole and healthy to begin with. And if mm-hmm. you're not feeling whole and healthy now, you can reclaim those pieces. with ease and grace and joy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Luce. I sincerely appreciate our time together. Um, If we can do anything to help you in your endeavors, please let me know for sure. And we will continue to support you in the work that you're doing. As we end our time, thank you for listening and watching. Please subscribe to the show, share it with a friend. Leave a review or a five-star rating and follow us on social media. If you have an idea for a show or would like to be a guest on the podcast, then reach out to us at hello at cnnslate.com.